Good evening. Welcome. Before we begin, let's just do a dedication. Tonight's class was dedicated by dear friend Chuck Mandel. This is an honor and in a prayer for a special, special miracle that the Jewish people need. Hashem should help. Um, there is very crucial elections going on in Israel, Ezra Hashem, tomorrow. Really, yeah, as we, uh, I think, uh, yeah, literally tomorrow. And um, the outcome is very, very, very crucial for the safety of the Jewish people, for the preservation of Eretz Yisrael. Now, really, in truth, um, the fact that Israel has not been able to put together a government, let me just make the fact that the already two times the government collapsed, and then it was tried, then they had elections, and they couldn't put it together, and then it collapsed, so then it, so it, so it fell apart a second time, and now they're going for round three. So my great hope is that um, all this should just uh, translate into the, the government that we've been waiting for, and that is the government of Mashiach that will resolve all problems and will bring peace, happiness, joy, and, and, uh, and, uh, and tranquility for the, not only for, the land, for, for, for Eretz Yisrael, but for the entire world. My, my, um, my deep sense that this is related to that was in something that happened when the last government fell apart, or rather, I shouldn't say when the last government. It, 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 it came apart through a fellow by the name of Vigda Lieberman. He, he kind of caused the first government to collapse, and then when they were about to put it together a second time, it caused the second time. Uh, he, he pulled, he, he couldn't, Netanyahu couldn't form the, a right-wing government because he was making problems. Now, what he said at that time, and we know that when, all, when ministers speak, uh, even though they, they're saying what they're thinking, but sometimes they're speaking things that are beyond the scope of what they're saying. So he said an interesting statement. He was trying to say that he's not going to let the religious, you know, dominate Israel. But what he, what he, his words that he actually used was, we're not going to allow, we're not going to allow a government to govern like it was in the times of King David. We're not going back to a government of King David. Those were his words. Very strange. I mean, I would, I, would, I would expect him to say, you know, we're not going to let the Haredim rule the country. We're not going to let the, uh, you know, we're not going to let uh, B'nai Barak uh, rule the entire country. He didn't use that. He said, we're not going to allow the government of King David. And um, on the very same day, Prime Minister Netanyahu said, you know, we're not going to go back to a theocracy. We're never going to have a, no, we're never going to have a theocracy, which means a government governing by religious law. Um, that was a statement. So it's interesting when you look at Rambam, when the Rambam describes the laws of Mashiach, in the laws of kings, chapter 11, the opening words of the Rambam are as follows. What is Mashiach? What is the halachic criteria of Mashiach? HaMelech HaMashiach Asid Lamoid, King Mashiach is going to get up, and, uh, and what is he going to do? Ulahachzer and to restore Malchus based David, the kingdom of David, to its original power. 
That means that the first thing we know halachically about Moshiach is not that he's going to make candy gross from trees, but that Moshiach, not that he's going to resurrect, that Moshiach is going to restore the government of Israel to be the kingdom of David HaMelech. So what comes out of Avigdor Lieberman's mouth? He says, we're not going to allow, I'm breaking the government because we're not going to allow it to be a, a, a kingdom like it was in the days of King David, a government of King David. And on the very same day, Netanyahu pipes up, and he says, we're not going to allow a religious, a theocracy, which is a religious government. Let's continue reading Maimonides. The next words, what does Maimonides say? What's going to happen after we establish a kingdom of Mashiach's power, which is going to be a government, the, the, the continuity, and not only that, but the true ultimate realization of the kingdom of David. What, is, what does Rambam say? kol And all the laws that were of Torah and mitzvahs that were back then are going to return, which means that Israel is going to be governed by a theocracy, a Torah law. So both of them, not, not consciously, but seem to be worried about something. And that's interesting. because I, I, So therefore, I, I was seeing that collapse of the government saying it's not working anymore. For 70 years it was there, but it's falling apart and falling apart and somehow, because from the middle of it all is supposed to come Moshiach, and obviously we're ready, we're so ready. So my blessing is that Moshiach should come and take over the whole thing. If chas v'shalom, chas v'shalom, chas v'shalom, God forbid, God forbid, we have to wait a little longer, we have to pray with all of our hearts, and this should be a schus, that uh, the winners of this should be those that stand strong, both for the observance of Torah and mitzvahs in Israel, and for the preservation of Eretz Yisrael, and not even to think for a half a second, not even to have a thought, a possible thought of giving any land of Israel to anybody and that we should keep and hold every... It's not, this is the promised land that Hashem gave each and every one of us. Hashem gave it to us miraculously and we may not... We have no right to hand over even an inch of land. In addition to the fact that by doing that, time has shown, and it's amazing how people have such a short-term memory that any time we show weakness of appeasement, we get, we get horrific terror. That's all we get in return. There is no reward. There is only unspeakable suffering. So that's that shouldn't happen. And we should see a big miracle. A big, big miracle. And again, what, what I am really praying for is for the real kingdom of what... Because this is all... Whatever, any way you slice it, it's only a band-aid. That's not the real thing. We want Moshiach. That's really what it's about. So that's the blessing for today. We should have the revelation of Moshiach Tzedkenu already tomorrow, already tonight. So we, we don't even have to go to elections. That would be great. Okay. Um, I want to announce this week is the birthday of the Holy Baal Shem Tov. It is also the birthday of the Balatanya, the founder of Chabad Hasidism. It's a very, very powerful day, the 18th of Elul. The 18th of Elul is actually going to start tomorrow night. It's going to be on Wednesday. Our center is a Balshemtov center, so we always celebrate Chai Elul, and it's usually a very special, deep, and powerful event. 
This year, it's going to take place a day after Chayel, on Thursday evening. Come here. Everybody's invited to join. It's going to be a magnificent concert and moving musical experience, singing on the deepest songs of Hasidism and preparing for Rosh Hashanah. We have Benzi Marcus from the Eighth Day, uh, Shlomo Simcha, uh, and a group of people singing along with them. It's going to be really, really heart-stirring. It's really going to open up the heart for Rosh Hashanah, for Mashiach, for, for deep connection. Uh, I have no shot. I mean, it's absolute. There's no, no question in my mind. Anybody's going to come over here is going to be moved. It's going to be a strong evening. And hopefully, not a little movement, a big movement to, to transform our hearts, our souls, to be ready for all the goodies that God has for us. Okay, again, so this is Wednesday night, this coming Wednesday night at 7. I'm sorry, Thursday night, this coming Thursday night at 7.30 p.m. If you go online and you make a reservation online, then you'll save seven bucks. It's 18 instead of 26 at the door. That's the way to do it. Okay, thank you. All that has been said, let's learn something. Anyways, this week I mentioned is the birthday, and today I want to talk about birthdays. I want to talk about the auspicious day that's the birthday of birthdays. Again, the 18th of Elul is the birthday of birthdays. Why is it the birthday of birthdays? We're celebrating an event that happened a little bit over 300 years ago, beginning the 18th. Now it's also, the, by the way, it's the yard site, the 18th of, of the, a very, very pivotal figure in the evolving um, movement of Hasidus was the holy saintly Maharal of Prague. He's the great-great-great-grandfather, a descendant of King David, um, who is the great-great-grandfather of uh, Rabbi Shneer Zalman of the Yadi, the founder of the Chabad movement. Now, um, that's his yard site. But again, the main celebration of the 18th of El that everybody focuses on is on the Baal Shem Tov and on his spiritual successor, Rabbi Shneer Zalman of the Yadi, has created such a powerful force of Hasidus in the world. And so... How can we call this the birthday of birthdays? Birthdays have been going on. Rosh Hashanah is also a birthday. It's the birthday of the world. It's the birthday of Adam HaRishon. So that's the birthday of birthdays, the first birth. Well, I mean it's the birthday of birthdays is because birthdays are generally not something that has been celebrated in traditional Judaism. Um, People might have had, you know, their own inspiration in terms of their family to make birthday parties for their children. Um, I don't know how, how long, how, how ancient it is, and how many families or people or different communities. It, it generally, in the mainstream Jewish world, people did not make a big deal, at least from a religious perspective. From their, like you don't find in Svarim anything written about celebrating a birthday and that it is an auspicious auspicious spiritual day with spiritual significance. It's a nice day for friends and family to hang out and to show gratitude or appreciation to someone or something like that. But, and other than that, or make someone feel special, but you don't really have any spiritual significance to it. Um, As a matter of fact, there are many people who, when they hear someone is celebrating a birthday, 
they have this negative reaction that that's not a Jewish thing, they will point to the only place in the Torah that a birthday is mentioned is on Pharaoh's birthday. Yom who led this Paro. Paro had a birthday and he celebrated and that's when he killed the, the, the he summoned the two by Yosef and one he the, 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 the one of them he reappointed the 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 the, 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 the his bartender he reappointed it to his position the other one he killed that's when he was celebrating his birthday so they say you see in Torah the only source for a birthday is a non-Jewish birthday but that's not true in Torah Judaism there is um, there is sources that there is significance to a birthday beginning with when Hashem chose that the Jewish people should um, erect the Mishkan on the first day of Nisan, the Jewish people completed building the Mishkan, which is the tabernacle, already in the month of Kislev, which is early winter. Yet, it was laying unassembled for another four months. And it was only assembled and put together, on Hashem said, on the first day of Nisan. The Medrash Tanchuma says the reason why God wanted to celebrate his first, his moving into his first home is because it was a very special birthday. It, it is, the Rosh Chodesh Nisan is the birthday, or Pesach in the month of Nisan, is the birthday of the first Jew. Who's the first Jew? Everybody says Avram, but here we're talking about Isaac, Yitzchak. Because Yitzchak is the first Jew who was born Jewish. Avram, some, at some time in his life, evolved into being a Jew. But Yitzchak is the first baby Jew. And God is so excited about the birth of this little baby boy, Jew, Jewish child, that because of that, Hashem says, and also because of the saintliness of who Yitzchak is, that Hashem says, I want to make this, I want to mark this day on my calendar to make it special by me moving into my home which is the dream of why God created the world in the first place, is to have a home in this world. So you see from the Midrash that Hashem sees the birth of a tzaddik as a significant day. Birthday is special. Because, you know, in Judaism, we primarily, going back, you know, without this Midrash, generally, we do celebrate a person's life, but the celebration of a person's life is, is generally reserved for their yard site. Yard sites has always been a Jewish thing. That's when so many Jews will see them in shul. The only time, you know, is when they have a yard site after their mother, after their father, after the loved one. They come running to shul to say Kaddish. A yard site is significant. And it makes sense. Because what's there to celebrate when someone is born? They didn't even do anything. It's not an accomplishment. They, you were born. But after a lifetime of achievements, we, we celebrate the person. What has the person achieved? What have you done with your life? But a birthday. But again, in this midrash that I pointed out, we see that a birthday is significant. Another very great source for the significance, for the importance of a birthday, is regarding the birth of Moshe Rabbeinu. By regarding Moshe Rabbeinu, it says that when Haman um, chose, was looking for an auspicious month to destroy the Jewish people, he was very excited when his lottery fell and came out in the month of Ador. Because he said he was very into luck, into lucky days, into the omens of the various different periods of time. So he decided that Ador is a time of bad luck for the Jewish people. Why? Because Moses, their first leader, the champion for the, the rights of the Jewish people, 
the one who led them out of exile, brought them to the borders of the promised land, brought them the Torah, did all the miracles. He's like the greatest hero in, in all of Jewish history. Moshe, he passed away. He died in Adar. And that's a bad sign for the Jewish people. Their leader was defeated. Um, so he felt it was good. So the Talmud says he did his research, but he didn't do his research well enough. What he didn't realize that Moshe Rabbeinu passed away on the day of his birthday. So Zion Adar, the seventh day of Adar, is in addition to it being Moshe, the day of Moshe's passing, it's also the day of Moshe's birth. And the Talmud says, let the birth of the tzaddik, which brings powerful light and goodness and holiness and, and good energy to the world, overpower the passing of the tzaddik and the negative element associated with it, with the tzaddik, that the tzaddik passed away. So the birth overrides the passing. And by the way, you see from here that this had such impact that literally Moshe's birthday is what secured our existence as Jews in the world today. Because had Haman had his way, there wouldn't be one Jew left. That was the time to wipe out all the Jewish people. So we survived, why? And he... and. And it seems like, as we said from the Gemara, from the Talmud, that he had it all, he had it figured out. He picked the right day, so to speak, of the Jewish weakness. But the reason it didn't work was because it was Moshe's birthday. So Moshe's birthday is actually responsible for the saving of the Jewish people. But here we see something else. Another thing that we can derive from here, both regarding Isaac, Yitzchak, and also regarding Moshe, in both of these times where we see that birthdays are significant, we see that they're significant even after the person's passing. We might think to celebrate a birthday is as long as the person is alive, but after they pass on, now it's almost like the fact that they died cancels their birth. What's their birth? They make, came into a physical body into this world. When they leave the world, they're out. And if they're out, so now the death cancels the birth. But we see that it doesn't work that way, that by Yitzchak, Hundreds of years later, 400 years later, not 400 years after Yitzchak's passing, four, oh yeah, 400 years after Yitzchak's birth, we're still, God chooses, 401 years, to do a, ma- a major good thing for the Jewish people to come reside in a Mishkan because today is Yitzchak's birthday. And by Moses, the same thing. The story of Purim happened a thousand years after Moshe passed away. And yet, we're close to a thousand years. And yet, the energy of his birthday is so strong that it thwarted Haman's evil scheme and all his plan. So birthdays you see from here are significant. Nevertheless, even though we have these Talmudic and Midrashic sources about the significance of a birthday, we do not find a tradition amongst the Jewish people, a common tradition. You will find some places that it's written that people in a very private way celebrated their birthday. It does say in various different tzaddikim in the past. But it's not, it was not something that was accepted as a, as a, um, a way of, as a minhag, so to speak, a custom in Judaism. And where did it change? Um, the previous Chabad Rebbe, See, we know, for instance, the Lubavitcher Rebbe encouraged everybody 
to uh, celebrate their birthdays. And he, and when I say encouraged, encouraged very strongly that every person should celebrate their birthday in a religious context, which means treat it as a very auspicious day to get closer, to, to focus yourself. It's almost like a mini Rosh Hashanah, a small Rosh Hashanah for yourself. Rosh Hashanah is the big world. Now this is your own personal birthday. And he recommended a few things. First of all, do extra mitzvahs of the, on that day. Give extra charity. Give extra tzedakah. Learn extra Torah. Say extra Tehillim on the day of your birthday. And make a gathering, make a, a, some kind of a birthday party. Gather with friends in which you will talk about serious things in life, important things, have like what we call a fabrengen, a gathering together. And take upon yourself every year on your birthday a new resolution to improve yourself in some aspect of your life. It's like, as we said, a mini Rosh Hashanah. And this has become something that has been thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have integrated in their lives. Today we can say it's a minhag Yisrael. It's a minhag already amongst the Jewish people. And it's spreading. It's getting more and more popular. The idea that people celebrate their birthdays. But where did the Rebbe really take it from? He took it from his father-in-law. Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, the previous Rebbe, revealed that on the 18th of Elul, which is coming, as we said, this Wednesday, is the birthday of the Holy Baal Shem Tov. It is also the birthday of Rav Shneir Zalman of Liadi and, and the Balatanya, his great-grandfather. And he says that's why this day is a Yom Tov. This is a Yom Tov. This is a Yom Tov for the Jewish people. This is a very powerful, good day for the Jewish people. And uh, we should treat it as a day of festivities and a day to really strengthen ourselves because it's a very powerful energy on this day to bring a lot of good. That is the idea of Chai El. And so, in, in a private way, all the Chabad Rabbeim, so until the previous Rebbe, until Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson publicized this, only the Chabad Rabbeim knew about this. But they kept it to themselves. They always celebrated the Baal Shem Tov's birthday. And they celebrated their own birthdays. That they would treat it as a day of festivity. They would teach their, their successors usually, or their children, Hasidus, the Rabbeim, the masters of Hasidus, the masters of Pneumius HaTorah, generally would only say Hasidus, which means channel new revelation of Torah, of the secrets of the Torah, only on auspicious days. One of the auspicious days they would do it was on the birthdays either of the earlier Hasidic masters or on their own birthday. So you see that they took birthdays seriously, but they still didn't publicize it. Previous Rebbe publicized it, and from that time and onward, it slowly made its way into becoming a minog for every person. Men, women, and children celebrate a birthday. Now, when the Rebbe was seeing people privately, in the days when the Rebbe would, see, would take people on private audiences, the minhag, the custom by Hasidim was that once a year, you would try to get in for a private audience from the Rebbe, and that was for your birthday. Uh, and there was uh, the fact that the Rebbe would meet you. Why? Because on your day of your birthday, what happens is your mazel shines. 
This is your day that your soul is shining the strongest. And that's why if you're going to meet a tzaddik, you have extra power to absorb his light, his advice and guidance. And to make the deepest connection. So what's coming out over here is that the birthday of a birthdays is the 18th of El. That's when birthdays were born. When I say birthdays were born, meaning to be, pu- to be celebrated publicly. So we need to understand why. Why do the birthdays revealed or why do they become a custom in the days of Hasidism? And the answer is because birthdays are deeply related and connected to Hasidic life and to the contribution of Hasidism to Judaism. In other words, the meaning of Hasidism is that we can be born, truly born as Jews. Earlier than that, we're Jewish, but we're not born yet. Hasidism allows you to be born as a Jew. And what do I mean by that? How can we say that? Until, until the Baal Shem Tov, we weren't born as Jews. We were, but we weren't really born. And let's understand what that means. Uh, Judaism has, we know, um, 613 commandments. The 613 commandments are divided in two types of commandments. We have positive commandments, mitzvot that we're told to do, like hearing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, Be'ezrat Hashem, eating matzah on Pesach, putting on tefillin every day, keeping, saying, remembering the day of Shabbos by saying Kiddush, and so on and so forth. These are all positive commandments. This week in the Torah portion, we're supposed to bring the Bikurim, the fruits, up to the Holy Temple as thanksgiving to God. And then we have what we call, pro, and then we have prohibitive commandments, right? Thou shall not. What we all told not to do. How many positive commandments do we have? 248. How many prohibitive commandments do we have? 365. Why these numbers? So it says in the Talmud, these correspond to the limbs and the, and the, and the blood vessels of a person. Blood vessels and arteries. We have 365 blood vessels. And we have 248 limbs. So what does that tell you? Judaism, living the life of a Jew, means... You are, as an entire being, a being of holiness. Each of your limbs, each of your limbs becomes sanctified through the observance of mitzvot. Again, through the positive observance and through the prohibitive observance, together we constitute a holy being. We become connected to God. Right? That's why we have 240... If mitzvahs would not, would not, if there wouldn't be 248 commandments, let's say there would only be 230 commandments, not 248, that means that there would be 12 of our organs of our body that would not be able to become Jewish. What do we mean Jewish? Godly and holy, right? Um, So therefore, as a result of having 248 commandments, 365 prohibitions, we evolve into a holy being in this world. And that goes back to when? From when the Torah was given? From when the Torah was given, a human being is given the opportunity, 
before the Torah was given, only very saintly people can make their bodies and make their lives holy. Like Abraham, Isaac, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov are patriarchs. And even them, it says in Hasidus, they are limited in how holy they can make their bodies. The physical was not ready to become holy. By the giving of the Torah, every single person, no matter, it doesn't make a difference what level of enlightenment, what level of knowing, knowledge, keeping the observance, especially when you keep the entire observance, every aspect of the human body becomes holy and God. Which means, a life of observance of Torah and mitzvahs, you're creating a new entity, which is a human, a holy human, a godly human. However, there is a huge, in a human being itself, there are two stages of a human being. Stage number one in human development is when the human exists absorbed inside his, his, his or her mother. That's the fetal state, the state of a fetus. When a human is still within, in, a, in, a, in the state of, when the mother is pregnant, the child is in a fetal state, at, definitely at the conclusion of nine months or at the closing, when they're entering from the eighth month to ninth month, they're already a full-fledged developed human being. Obviously, they need to stay within the mother to help fully strengthen the body, grow the body till till the body is able to eventually be put outside of the mother and be able to sustain itself. So God, with his infinite wisdom, planned it out that for nine months, the child is within the womb of the mother developing. But it's a full-fledged child. The baby, the fetus, has all 248 limbs and 365 blood vessels. It's a full human being. Stage number two, this fetus is born. And when the fetus is born, means the child leaves the mother's womb and it becomes, he or she becomes an independent, living, talking, walking, seeing creature in this world. So when we're talking about the development of the Jewish persona, this holy human being also goes through stages of development. When are we really going to be fully, fully born as Jews? Be full human beings, godly beings that we ought to be? That's going to be in the up and coming birth, in the coming of Mashiach. Until that time, we are still in a state of development. We are all a fetus within our mother. Even though we're practicing Judaism, and we're doing all the commandments, which means we're developing the organs, we're developing the limbs, and following, and how do we develop correctly when we're following the Torah and the dictates of the the code of Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch, and then we know how to keep ourselves safe, develop the way we should, but we're still in a fetal state. The real birth, as we know, it's explained in many verses in the Navi, it compares the exile to a pregnancy and the Jewish people in exile to the fetus and the going out of exile, both when we went out of Egypt and when we're going to go out of this exile with the coming of Mashiach is compared to a birth. If that's the case, so we understand that 
we can say we are currently in a fetal state. However, Moshiach's coming doesn't happen with a drop of a hat. The coming of Moshiach comes in stages. Messianic light and Messianic revelation comes to the world. It, there will be a moment of extraordinary revelation. And let's hope that we are, it's going to happen any, any second. But in addition to that powerful one-time completion of Moshiach's coming, the coming of Moshiach comes to the world in various stages. And one of the massive stages of Moshiach's emergence in the world is the emergence of Hasidism and the Holy Baal Shem Tov. We all know the Baal Shem Tov wrote a letter to his brother-in-law, Reb Gershon of Kitiv. The Baal Shem Tov had a brother-in-law. It was a whole story how the Baal Shem Tov married this girl. The Baal Shem Tov was a hidden tzaddik pretending to be a very simple, ignorant, ignorant person. And therefore, um, everybody, no one paid any attention to this ignoramus. And there was a great, great scholar and a wonderful scholarly family uh, which lived in the town of Kitav. They were great geniuses, great scholars. And the father had passed away and he had a son. His name was Reb Gershon and he had a daughter. This Reb Gershon was an, a great, great tzaddik and a great scholar. The Baal Shem Tov married his sister. How it came about that a ignoramus would marry a tzaddik was that for whatever reason when the Baal Shem Tov knew that it's time for him to get married to this girl and he knew this, he was I guess instructed from above to remove his mask. He met her father and removed his mask of ignoramus and he allowed his true light to shine. And his father-in-law was blown away by this genius of geniuses and he can see his holiness and he arranged the shidduch. But as soon after that, the father died. And the son, the sons never met. The brother of the Kala, who's a great scholar on his own, never met his brother-in-law. And when it came time to meet, he met this boorish a young man, this, this ignoramus. He couldn't believe it. He thought it was a mistake. But as a respect to his father, he couldn't understand what his father was thinking. And a respect for his father, he allowed the shidduch to go, to continue. But then, as he got to know the Baal Shem Tov more and more, he angered him, and it angered him, and it angered him. He tried to force his sister to get divorced from this ignorant. But she knew the secret. She knew who her husband is. So she wouldn't she, and she, but she wouldn't divulge him. And she wasn't going to leave him for no money in the world. In the end, they, had, they lived a very poor life. And they, they, were, they had a lot of tsaris, the couple. Until the Baal Shem Tov revealed himself to his brother. Before he revealed himself to the whole world, he became slowly revealed. His brother found out that, he's, that, that, that his brother-in-law that he thought is so, so, such a nobody is one of the, the greatest tzaddikim ever to live in this world. And he was... Yeah. So later, this Reb Gershon of Kitav traveled to Israel. And the Baal Shem Tov writes many letters to him. In one of his letters, the Baal Shem Tov reveals to him about something that he just did. He said that on Rosh Hashanah, and he points, I forgot which year it is, he said, I, I did a soul ascendance. One of the things that the great Sadiqim are able to do is that they're able to elevate their souls, even while they're alive, to a higher plane.
the Baal Shem Tov would do this many times. He would ascend to the higher realms, to the higher worlds, higher and higher and higher and higher, while physically breathing and being physically in his body, mentally and emotionally, he wasn't here. He actually left into the higher realms. So he says that on this Rosh Hashanah, I, I did one of these ascendances, and I've risen to places that I've never gone before. I reached such heights that I've never been before. And he describes a whole story how he went from place to place. He saw that, and when he was on his way back down, he was way back down, he saw that in each chamber he passed, there was such simcha and such joy that he didn't know, he never saw such joy in heaven. And he didn't know why they were so happy. And he thought for a while, maybe because he passed away. He thought he passed away. And then they revealed to him, it's not time of his passing. Anyways, as he was making his way through the heavenly chambers, he ended up, ended up, he didn't just end up, somehow he was led into the chamber of Moshiach's Nisham, the soul of Moshiach. And he has a conversation with Moshiach. What do you say when you meet Moshiach? Shalom Aleichem Moshiach, how are you? What do you say? No, <laughs> we're waiting. And that's what he said. No, we're waiting. He used the term of the Gemara. The Gemara says another sage met Moshiach. Someone wanted to meet Moshiach and uh, Elio Anavi told him where to meet Moshiach. So he went to meet him and he asked him these questions in Aramaic. When is the master coming? So the Balshem now when the sage asked when is, when is Moshiach coming, Moshiach answered today. And then he was very disappointed. Because it, the day came and went and it didn't. He's like, really? Today? I came the right day? Today you're really coming? And in the end it didn't happen. So then Elio Anavi explained it because he went back to Elio. He said, Mashiach, is, can, can you be lying? He never arrived. I was waiting all day. He said, yeah, when he said today, it means today if you will repent. The, the verse says, Hayom, if you will repent. I can. Mashiach is ready to come anytime. When the Balshemtov asked this question 1,500 years later, when the Balshemtov was in the heavens, Above and he asked Moshiach the question, "When are you coming?" Moshiach said, "When, when your wellsprings, when your teachings will flood the planet, When your teachings will spread outward, how far to the far corners of the earth? When that will happen, then the world will be ready for Moshiach." In other words, Moshiach revealed to the Balshemtov his unique role and his destiny, that he, through his neshama and through his teachings, Judaism, the Jewish people, and the entire world will become ready for Moshiach. And this prepares the world for Moshiach. If that's the case, that the Baal Shem Tov is the, is the beginning, so to speak, the, 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 the final rectification, the final preparation for the coming of Moshiach, and Moshiach, means birth. And what does it mean, birth? We as Torah Jews, in which we develop our limbs and organs as Torah Jews, will go out of a fetal state and will we be born as Jews, as, as full-fledged, godly, saturated beings in this world, it must be that that birth began already with the Baal Shem Tov. 
What that means is that anybody that wants to be born early into the messianic type of being born as a Jew can learn the teachings of the Holy Baal Shem Tov, followed by his successor, the other Hasidic masters. And as we're soon going to see, Rav Shneer Zalman of Liadi, the founder of Chabad Hasidism, added something fundamental and, and huge to this process, to Hasidism, to the power of Hasidism, which furthers the birth of, of that individual to be, to be able to live post-Mashiach. Hasidism allows you to live already today, semi-Mashiach already, semi-Mashiach conscious, which means as a born child, as a born human being, not just a child, as a born human being. Why is that? What does that mean? Let's get a better understanding. How will my Yiddishkeit change as a result of Hasidism? What does Hasidus contribute to make a person's Judaism change? And the answer is as follows. Let's go back to the fetus. The fetus within the mother is a full-born, is a full-fledged being. All the limbs, all the organs, and they're working. They're all alive. However, the fetus is not called a soul, a nefesh, a living being. Now, that does not mean, God forbid, that Judaism allows for abortion. We're not saying that there is no life. There is life in the mother's womb. A fetus is alive, but it's not called a living being in the sense of it being a nefesh. Halachic, halachic um, um, uh, application, let me give you the halachic application to this, is in regarding to re- abortion. In Judaism, there is one way in which a baby is allowed, God forbid, to be aborted. A fetus is a, a fetus is allowed to be an unborn child is allowed to be aborted, and that is when this fetus is a threat to the mother's life. If the mother might die, um, if the fetus is going to be born naturally, or they just let the fetus there, the mother will die. So to save the mother's life, we are obligated to take the life, to abort this child. That's the law, and it doesn't make a difference if it's in the first trimester or in the third. If the mother, if the child is threatening, that means even during labor, if the child is now threatening the mother, and the doctor knows that if he will do an operation, take the baby out, the baby will die, but the mother will live, you're obligated to do that, as long as the head has not come out. Once the head of the child came out, you're not allowed to do that. If the mother is going to die, then the mother is going to die, but you can't take the baby's life to save the mother. Sometimes you're faced with tough questions. This is a very tough question. Do you allow the woman to die to save the baby? Do you allow the baby to die to save the mother? Whose life overrides the other? Why do we say that a fetus, um, that until the baby's head is out, the baby... Um, the baby is secondary to the mom. Rashi says because the baby is not called a nefesh. Generally, the rule is ein doche nefesh mipnei nefesh. You can't push away one life for another life. We don't say kill this person so the other person can live. No one has. It doesn't make a difference if the other person is the greatest scholar and the greatest tzaddik. 
You don't say, let this person die so the other person can live. Let's say there's two people that uh, are, uh, are in a room and the, guy, and the guy says, hand me over one of the two and I'm going to kill one and the other one will survive. There is, the, we have, and let's say, you know, the person, they'll be able to send a letter to the Beisden and say, one guy is tzaddik, he's a big rabbi, you know, the other one is just a, whatever, a schlepper. And therefore, you know, can we tell the, the, the simple person to go out and let himself be killed to save the tzaddik? If he wants to do it voluntarily, maybe he has permission to do so. But he has, he's not obligated to do that. You don't push away one soul for another soul. A life for a life. Therefore, um, we can't kill the baby to save the mother. If the baby is called a nefesh. But before the baby is born, the baby is not a nefesh. Now, Ramban says, and hear these words, Nachmanides says, that that does not in any way give us permission to abort the child not to save the mother. If it's not a nefesh, we can kill all babies. I don't want to have a chashkava. A mother decides she doesn't want to have her baby. And therefore, whatever. She feels that uh, she never wanted to have a baby. It was an accidental pregnancy. And therefore she wants to get rid of the baby. Who cares? The baby is not a nefesh yet. It's not alive. You're not allowed to. Ramban says, because the baby is alive. The fetus is alive. Hold it, but if he's alive, why isn't he a nefesh? So Ramban says, he is alive, he or she is alive, but they're alive with their mother's life. They're not alive with their life, with their own life. Follow? They are alive. The fetus is alive, but it's living off its mother's life. When the child's head comes out, then the child is now living their own life. And therefore, they are called a living entity, a nefesh. So earlier, they are alive. You're not allowed to take away that life. But it's a continuation. It's almost like a limb of the mother. A limb of the mother. It's a part of the mother, but it's not its own independent being. A baby is born, now it's alive. Why? So let's now get a little deeper. Why if you're living off someone else's life are you not called a nefesh? Let's take it a step deeper. What's the reason for that itself? Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. Once you're born, you're living off your life. That's why you have to eat your own food, breathe your own oxygen, and so on and so forth. When the baby's in the mother, the baby is living off the fluids of the mother. The baby is living off the food of the mother. When the baby becomes alive, when the fetus steps out, uh, is, is, born, is born, now... He's, he's got to do his own thing. Oh, so he's living his own life. Being that he or she is living her own life, so we call them a living being. But technically, if you're piggybacking on someone else's life, if you're catching a, a hitch, if you're catching a hitch on someone else's life, why is that not called being alive? And the answer is, being alive means that you and your life are one. That's, that's, that's the omic, that's the depth. You and your life force are one. When you're living off someone else's life, you and your life force are not one. Or let's put it this way. 
To be alive means body and soul have merged together to become one entity. A living being is not a dead body energized by a living soul. That's not what it is. We're not dead people and that within us there is a soul and the soul is alive and it's dragging along the dead body. That's not life. When, when a soul enters the body, the body becomes alive. Because the two merge to the point that they become indistinguishable soul. Obviously we can only see the body. But when I'm looking into your eyes and I'm talking to you, I'm talking to your soul. No, but I'm talking to you as your soul, you as your soul and body, because you and your, the soul and the body completely integrate, become so assimilated, one with each other, they are one. So, you know, because of the curse of Chava, it doesn't last forever. But once Moshiach comes, it will last forever, fine. So a living being means that they and their life force are one, and body and soul are one. A fetus in the mother's in the mother's womb, even though, in a sense, your, the fetus is much safer there than outside. You don't have to worry the baby will walk, will, 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 will fall down. You don't have to worry that the baby is going to reach for something toxic. You know, little kids, toddlers, one-year-olds, got to watch them the whole time. Here they can eat poison, here they can fall down the stairs, chas here they can bump their head, here they can, you know, uh, jump into the, dish, uh, the, into the dishwasher. Who knows what kids can do? You know, you'd be very, very careful with little kids. But when the, uh, sadly we've been seeing stories where mothers forgot their babies in cars, there's always danger. But when a mother is pregnant, she has her baby inside of her, wherever she goes, the baby goes, the mother is obviously a responsible adult, and she's not going to eat the poisonous food, and she's always going to eat, and always that. So the baby's far better taken care of. In a sense of security of life, there is more security inside than outside. Better, it might be much better inside. Even for the baby. Even spiritually, it's much better for the baby inside. Why? We know that when a child is inside the mother's womb, the baby, the fetus is taught the entire Torah. Everything. The whole in ta- the Torah and all of its entirety is torn, taught by an angel to the, to the fetus during its... And then, when it comes time to be born, the angel comes, taps the, fetus on the, taps the fetus on the lips, on top of the lips, makes the little dent, and from that, forgets everything that I learned. And then it has to study and study to regain that knowledge. How many people do you know leave the world with... And that they have and have managed to study and to know the entire Torah. Very few people manage to get to that place where they know all of the Torah. Comes out according to that that being born is a real bummer. It is much better being a fetus in the mother. Yet, yet, and by the way, it says an interesting thing. One of the reasons we make, we know when the baby boy is born, before the bris, Shabbos, before the bris, there's something called a Shalom Zachar. Shalom Zachar is people come Friday night and they eat chickpeas and beer. Um, No, eat potato chips too, or whatever else, cake and strawberries. People come as a party in the house of the baby. People go visit and uh, whatever. That's called a Shalom Zachar. It's an old, old tradition. One of the reasons given 
is because they go to they go actually to comfort the the mourning one. The baby is sitting shiva. That's what it says. The baby is sitting shiva on its fetal condition. In other words, when it lived as a fetus, it was living. It was living. A, uh, it was living the life. It says actually the baby is in mourning because it forgot the Torah. Literally, and it sits seven day mourning. And that's, and that's why we go visit, just like you go visit someone who's in mourning. It's, it's a shiva call. It's as strange as it sounds. It's a Shabbos shiva call to the baby that forgot its Torah. So we're all coming to comfort him. And I hope, I'm just thinking to myself, if you're a big scholar that has regained the whole Torah, it's one thing that you go, you go, you go, <laughs> you go comfort him because he can say, hey, you know, this guy regained it. But if a person ends up not learning anything, so why is he going to the shiva? He's going to show the baby, hey, you know what? I say, I want to turn out like you. No, <laughs> that's embarrassing. Okay. Anyways, I'm not saying that people that are not knowledgeable in all of Torah should not go to Shalom Zachers. Then Shalom Zachers will not do too well. We want everybody to go to Shalom Zachers, but it does say the reason for Shalom Zacher is that a baby is mourning for the Torah that it forgot. And you go and you know the part that I didn't that I noticed. The reason we wait for the eighth day is because the mitz when the eighth day is going to be the bris. Why can't you do the bris earlier? Because a bris has to be done every mitzvah. You have to do besimcha. You have to do the bris joyfully. The baby also has to be joyous. But until they until they do the the, the, the actual cut then the baby will cry. But even when the baby's crying in pain, on a soul level, the child is happy that they had a bris, they went into the coven, they did the mitzvah. But you can't do the, you, being that during the, shit, the seven days, the baby is in the state of mourning, so it's sad. He can't do the mitzvah. He's not conditioned for a mitzvah. So you wait to the eighth day, to the days of mourning. All of this illustrates how it's so much better in the previous state. Yet, if God created us, that we're that from the fetus we, we get to be born, there must be something amazing about being born. And, and especially as we said before, we celebrate a birthday. Celebrating a birthday means being born is a good thing. You see, birthday does not mean conception. Birthday is when you were born. Conception happened like nine months earlier. So we're talking about the transitioning from fetus. That's what we're celebrating when we're celebrating a birthday. What's the celebration? The celebration is what we were saying before. Till then, you can know the whole Torah, you're in a good state, everything light, but the, the, the fetus, the baby, and its life are two separate things. It's his mother's life, not his life. Body and soul, it's in a sense a dead body being enlivened by a life force. It's not a living being. They haven't merged together. When do they merge together as a living being? When the child is born and he becomes independently alive. He or she is now essentially living. Even if they're living now is in a state where they know nothing. The only thing the baby knows is how to soil their diaper and, and hiccup and do other things. My house is full with little babies, Baruch Hashem. Now it's things that I've forgotten already, but now the Enoch are coming. The grandchildren, so I'm getting to see all the things that the babies do. That's all the kid can do, but he's alive. He is alive. A living being, being alive, is better than a dead scholar. (laughs) 
Because when he's in the when before, even when he's, 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 he's even if it's a great scholar, it's not he's not alive. Not his life. So you see where we're going over here with the Balshemtov. The Balshemtov came and brought life to the Jewish people. The Balshemtov allowed, but let's take it deeper. Not only now, the Balshemtov made us be alive. He brought simcha and joy and happiness and excitement. Oh, that's one thing. But we're saying deeper. What's the child that needs to be born? The child that needs to be born, we said before, is your Torah life. Your observance of mitzvahs. 613 mitzvahs. 248 limbs of mitzvah observance. It needs to be alive. You and your life need to be one. You know what that means? That you and your mitzvah observance have to become one. That your identity is the mitzvah. Ah. This is the depth. Your identity is your mitzvah. Your life is Shabbos. Your life is tefillin. Your life is, is kashros. That, that, that's who you are. You fully identify with it. You have no other being other than the, the charity that you do, the good deeds that you're doing. That's your very existence. That's your very being. Hasidism brings that to the person. Without that, we will always remain Beings that are practicing Yiddishkeit. Judaism is an observance. It's not who we are. So this is all a big commercial from Ayn Yisrael, by the way. We teach Hasidus over here. So the, the idea over here is Yiddishkeit is you. Why does Hasidus, what's the secret of the Baal Shem Tov? Why is it? I mean, we had inspiration before the Baal Shem Tov. What is it about the Baal Shem Tov's teachings? You can find many great, you can even learn Kabbalah too. There's a lot of Kabbalah before the Baal Shem Tov. There's the whole teaching of the Holy Ari, mysticism, inspiration, Musr, genius of genius of all the great rabbis throughout all the generations. Yet no one has that magic of enabling us and our Judaism, us and our observance to become completely one, to we become a living being. The Torah and the Jew have merged together. The child is born. There is a nefesh of Kedusha. There is a nefesh of, holy, of holiness over here. You and your Yiddishkeit are one. You know why? Because until the Baal Shem Tov came, no one taught the most fundamental and most important teaching. Until the Baal Shem Tov, God created a world. And the world is a world. God created a world. And the world is a world. If the world is a world, then all the creatures in the world are creatures and are beings. Now, if you are a, a intelligent being, if you are a, a righteous being, if you are a saintly being, if you are only a decent being, you ask yourself, who made me and why am I? Right? Those are the questions you will ask. You will come to the conclusion that someone, I didn't just pop out of nowhere, someone made me and that being that made me owes that I pay attention to him. Doing what? Let's find out. Oh, we have a Torah. God tells us what he wants from us. I am I'm willing to serve him. I am willing to serve him. Who is serving God? I am serving God. Who am I? I am a creation. 
Do I have a right to be a creation? Of course I have a right to be created because God created me. I mean, right. I mean, I didn't do anything to be created, but once, for whatever reason, God decided to make me, I am a being. I exist. Now, what am I going to do with existence? With my existence? I can be ungrateful and use my existence towards my own, own desires and wants and pleasures, or I can use the resources that God has gifted me with, all coming from Hashem. Yes, I acknowledge that, I understand that. And may, but, I, I, but I also appreciate God created me, made me, and therefore I owe it to God to serve Him. And I will serve Him. I might even do it joyfully, serve my Creator. But in the end of the day, when I go to sleep, what's the reality? The reality is that there is a creation. And there is a me, and I am choosing to devote myself to my Creator who created me. But there is a me. The Balshemtov challenged that very notion. The Balshemt, if you have to boil the Balshemtov down to one teaching, what's the essence of the teachings of the Balshemtov? The essence of the Balshemtov's teaching that he is, and aside from him, nothing exists. He is everything. The world is nothing other than an expression of him. The Balshemtov is the one who gave us the true meaning of divine, of 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 of. Um, of the unity of God. The unity of God means that there's no other reality other than Hashem. What is the reality of the world? God. Not that God created an existence and the world exists, controlled, directed, influenced by God, but it is something. According to the Baal Shem Tov, there is no something. There is only Him. And the Baal Shem Tov went around teaching this teaching, how to see in everything in the world that there is only Him. He is and there's none but Him. If that's the case, when one opens themselves up to the teachings of Hasidus, what do they now realize? What do they realize? That I don't exist. What's my existence? My existence is the divine. Now, what's my relationship with the divine? In what sense am I the divine? The Baal Shem Tov explains how the divine, how godly energy is that God didn't create the world a gazillion years ago. He didn't even create the world 5,700 and something years ago. Hashem is continuously creating the world every second. And His breath and His life force and His speech invigorates and makes us continuously every second. So the truth is, the, since without the power, that the creative power that's imbued in us, making us every second, we would cease to exist, then who are we really? The energy that's creating us. So we're nothing other than an expression from God, of God. Therefore what? I have to ask myself, if there's nothing other than God over here, what's the content of my existence as an expression of God? What's the content? So the content is as follows. Hashem decided with His infinite wisdom, with His, out of His, whatever you want to attribute it to, that triggered Him to desire the creation. But what did Hashem desire? Hashem desired Fill in. That's what Hashem wanted. 
Hashem desired the observance of tefillin. Hashem desired the observance of charity, tzedakah. That's what God wanted. Out of that wish and out of that desire that there should be tefillin, or there should be tzedakah, or there should be mezuzah, in order for that to happen, there needs to be a Jewish person inhabiting and living inside a physical world that has a left arm and a skull in which he can wrap the straps and the boxes on the tefillin and put it on his head and on his arms. And that's the entire content of my arm and of my head. So then I only need a left hand. Why do I need a right hand? Oh, God also desired tzedakah. So he wanted me to write checks. For that I need fingers. And I have to have... Uh, or I have to be able to you know, put a coin into it, and I have to be able to have fine motor skills. I can take, fish out the quarter out of my pocket, or the dollar out of my wallet, or the credit card, or whatever it is, and swipe it. So I need to be able to, and that's the content of my fingers. And what's the content of my teeth? So I should be able to eat and make a blessing, and say, Berkat other than that intention and desire, there is no other existence. Even, even if you're arguing, you'll say, well, most of the time I'm not using my hand. I'm using my hand for so many other things. But if someone who learns Hasidus, and the teachings of Hasidus has permeated his being, knows and senses that the moment that he, he or she is truly alive, when I'm allowing the true expression of my existence to be realized and actualized, is when I am doing the godly thing, because that's what it's here for. That's its, that's its true essence. Even though maybe 85% of the time, my hand is not wearing to fill in, or my brain is not thinking Torah necessarily, I'm doing other things. But really in truth, every, everything is about the tefillin. Everything is about the mitzvah that I'm doing. And everything else somehow is supporting that. So we find this actually halachically. We find halachically, and here this is a very deep point and a very beautiful point. The Rebbe says this is such a brilliant point. We find halachically that the existence, the very material of something, its true existence is its purpose. Other than that, we don't consider it even existing. Its existence is its purpose for what it, for what it exists for. And let me give you an amazing halachic illustration of that. The, well, we study Rambam, and we're actually studying these laws right now, the laws of Shabbos. On the, in the daily cycle of, of the yearly cycle of learning Rambam. So there's a law pertaining to carrying on Shabbos. On Shabbos we know you're not allowed to carry from one domain, from a public domain, private domain. You can't, can't carry an item. If there's no special enclosure, an Eruv, you can't carry from one, from one Rishus to another Rishus. Okay. Um, but the halacha is that, that what you are carrying has to have a, has to have a certain minimal amount. If you're carrying food, for instance, a food item, it has to be the least of what someone would be eating. So for the human food, I think the size is like a date. Kigroger is like a date. Less than that is not considered food. But the size of a date, then if you carry that size, if you take a piece of chicken out in the street, if it's the size of a date, then it's considered carrying. Less than that, you're not obligated. Fine. 
Now, what happens if I'm carrying a plate? Let's say I'm carrying a tray, a big tray that once had, let's say, 38 pieces of chicken on it. But now there's only one piece left. And my grandmother couldn't come to the meal and I'm carrying, everybody ate all the chicken, there's one piece left and I'm carrying the entire tray from the house. To, but the piece of chicken that's on the tray, grandma only eats a little bit, the piece of chicken that's on the tray is less than a, the size of a date. So one will argue and will say, okay, for the chicken, I can't hold you accountable because it was less than a try of a date, but you carried the big tray. It's a big, you're carrying a tray. So for the tray, you violated the commandment of not carrying on Shabbos, because you're carrying on Shabbos. From a private domain to a public domain. So the Allah is, no, we can't hold you accountable on the tray. Why? Since the tray is serving the chicken, the only reason you're carrying the tray is as a handle, as, a, as something to hold the chicken. And the chicken does not have the, the amount. So we say like this, the entire tray is nullified to the chicken, as if the tray doesn't exist, only the chicken. The chicken is less than a date size, and because of that, you're not liable on the, on the, on the chicken, you're not liable on the tray. What do you see from here? If we have glasses, if we have Torah glasses, if we see the world from the truth of what the truth is, as Torah sees it, from a halachic perspective, that's the truth. We don't look at the external fabric. We're not looking at the, at the physical material. We're looking at its true nature. The nature of this object is what its purpose is. The purpose is the chicken. Even though the chicken is only occupying uh, 3% of the tray doesn't make a difference. The whole tray is to be a tray for food, and the food that's on it is only this little piece. So what's the content of a left hand, at least in a man? The left hand is to put on tefillin. The content of a left hand in a woman is to bake challah, or something she does with her left hand. I'm not exactly sure. On her right hand, lighting Shabbos candles. The content, and that means that's who I am. That, that's my, other than that, I don't exist. There's no reality to me other than my mitzvah observance. Ooh, that kind of attitude can only come from the fundamental teaching that there's nothing in the other in existence other than God. So when, I'm, when I am learning Torah and when I am doing mitzvahs, my observance of mitzvahs is not that there is me and there is my Yiddishkeit, but I and my Yiddishkeit are one. That's called being born. Being, because as we said earlier, the child, that's the Torah observance. The question is, how much is that your identity or how much is it something outside of you? Outside, outside of you. There is your existence and something other than you. Is your Yiddishkeit kihein chayeinu v'orech yomeinu? Is this your life? Is this your existence? Now one of the other things we see, and here's an amazing thing. One of the other things we see about the difference between a fetus and a, and a born child is that a fetus, even though it's a full-fledged being and everything and fully alive, as we said, not, not, a, not, not a soul, but alive, but it's only alive for, for itself. It cannot impact in any way anybody outside of, itself, outside of where it is. It lives a very selfish existence, if we can say. It doesn't have any impact at all on the environment. 
The only impact I might have in the mother is that it might make the mother a little cranky while she's pregnant, and that can impact uh, you know, her surroundings. But other than that, that's an indirect influence. But directly, the child doesn't have any influence. Once the child is born, immediately when they're born, you hear them crying. And already, you know, if you're reading the newspaper, the baby already hacking you in China. You know, if you're treating trying to, if you're in a hospital and you're and then it's not your baby, so an other baby is born, and you're trying to concentrate on something, and it's not your baby that was it's born, you might think, oh, you know, they're disturbing me. This sign, or you might be moved to compassion. You might, or you might be mesmerized by the wonder of life. But you're being impacted. Others are being impacted by the child. And once you bring the child home, of course. They take over the entire home. Every two minutes they need something else. They're making everybody crazy. Their influence, their life is impacting others. And then when the child obviously grows up to be a child, they become more of an influencer to others. Hopefully every human being should be a big influence on community, on neighborhood, on society. We make a difference. When we're in a fetus state, we're living for ourselves wonderfully, but there's no impact on, on the outside. An interesting thing you see in the world, being Jewish has always been a selfish kind of thing. People were always Jewish for themselves. Until about 50 years ago, there are a few thousand Jews who every single one of them doesn't just keep Torah and mitzvahs, but is influencing communities and people, and many, many people, to observance. It happens to be that all these people that are doing so are Hasidim. They're the ones who are taking responsibility and going out across the world, not just to put tefillin themselves, not just to have a minion themselves, not just to study themselves and have their own Seder, which Chabadnik has his own Seder. They're all having a public Seder. If I'm doing it, I'm going to have another 20 people doing it with me. Or 30, or 100. If I, how many... I mean, every Jew has to hear shofar. The natural thing is, Rosh Hashanah, you go hear shofar. I have a chiyuf to hear shofar. Every Jew from Jew goes to hear shofar. The Chabadnik, whether he's a shliach, forget about it. He's, he's giving up his whole davening. You know, you realize that. A Chabad shliach doesn't daven in Rosh Hashanah. Everybody's davening. He's not davening. He has to make sure that this guy's hearing shofar, this one. He's davening, but you're not davening. Ah, you're not going to say, Zohreinu l'chayim. It's Yom Adin. You have to say, Zohreinu l'chayim. But I don't have time for that. This Jew needs to hear shofar. This one needs to daven and I have to make sure the, 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 the meal is being served. And every, If I'm not going to have a meal this year, good. No one is coming back next year. Rosh Hashanah for services. It's a total sacrifice. But more than that, even if he's not a shliach, go walk on the streets over here. You'll see the Chabadnik running down the street, stopping people and asking them if they heard shofar and blow shofar. And it's almost like, well, 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 what do you mean? If I have to hear shofar, he's got to hear shofar. Why am I different than him? Every Jew needs to hear shofar. So any Jew I can catch, I will give them shofar too. But why is that? Why is he so concerned? Well, because he's a Lubavitcher, and the Lubavitcher ever told him to do so. Oh, it's not just that. It's much deeper than that. It's intrinsic. And here, this is such a deep thing. It's amazing. You know why? When you are living off something else, you can't enliven something. When you're receiving your vitality from something else, you can't be the source of, you can live for yourself. But if you, if your life is yours, that means you're essentially a living being, you can channel that life and enliven someone else. 
You can enliven someone else if you are alive. Truly alive because you and your life are one. If you are an entity other than your life and you're, you're, you're flowing life from some other source, you don't have the power to enliven a third entity. Since Hasidism, the teachings of Hasidus, the teachings of Tanya, the teachings of all the Maimarim, all the myths, bring us to a state of realization that Judaism is not something that I just do, but by very being, everything is Hashem. My, and every time, when I'm learning Torah, doing mitzvah, I'm just expressing my true nature of who I really am, which isn't me because it's only God and there's only a revelation of Hashem. When we live that way, we and our life are one. We and Torah and mitzvah are one. We and Hashem are one. And then we can pass life and enliven others. Or else we can't do it. And that's the reason why birthdays, which is the celebration of being born, Waited in Judaism. It's the one thing that waited in Judaism for over 5,000 years for it to start being celebrated because it's messianic. It belongs to the birth of the Jewish people that's going to happen when Mashiach will come. When it says about Mashiach, actually, it says about Mashiach Tetkenu, Ani Hayom Today I gave birth to you, God says that. Mashiach is himself is the, 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 the birthday of birthdays. And he, and the power of Hasidism that leads to Mashiach is the power to be born as a Jew, be alive as a Jew, and with that power to enliven others as well. May we already see the ultimate birthing of Mashiach Tzadkenu, and that we, all of us, should feel that life force pulsating in our blood, and that we can share that life and enliven everyone. May it be now. L'chaim.